What's up? It's Talib Kweli, the BKMC. I'm looking at my ear pods. It looks like I got strange white things coming out of my ears. You know what I'm saying? This is the People's Party. Shout out to Jasmine Lee. Say what's up to my co-host, the lovely and talented Jasmine Lee. What's up, Jasmine? What's up, people? You're looking uh, vibrant. Am I? Am I glowing? <laughs> we are We are from a remote location because obviously we're still in lockdown, but we had to keep bringing you to People's Party. We had to keep getting the guests and... um. This next guest that we have is somebody who's, whose name came up when we first invented this show. Because this man's spirit is like the spirit of what we're trying to capture for People's Party. He is one of the best working comedians of his generation. He's put out one of the best stand-up specials of the last decade. It's classic because, you know, people are still talking about it. He's co-head writer of Saturday Night Live. And we're going to get into that because Saturday Night Live is one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, co-anchor of Weekend Update. You listen to this man, and he re represents this every every man aesthetic, you know. But he brings high-minded concepts down to the level that people could understand. And I really appreciate this brother. I'm inspired by him, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Michael Che, to the People's Party. Oh man, Michael yeah, yeah. Che! Oh, I was starting to wonder who you was talking about after a while. <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing intro. <laughs> I'm playing with some on the intros, brother. That was fantastic, man. Like, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear what I have to say now. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's, that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. <laughs> that works. Um, well, thank you for doing this, Michael. Um, I'm glad that I got to do this with you. I wish we could do it in person, but we make and do. Um, you know... Man, you were born in New York City, just like me. Um, yep. But you're born in the Lower East Side, aka Loisa. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I am. I'm a Brooklyn-born dude, and uh, the Lower East Side. I remember going to the Lower East Side when I was a kid, and it'd be like Puerto Rican dudes playing Grand Puba out of Suzuki Samurais. I like souped up Suzuki Samurais. Like, there's a whole culture to the Lower East Side with the food with the clothes, with the, tell us about the culture of the Lower East Side for people who don't, who think it's just, you know, regular old Manhattan. Lower East Side is fascinating uh, because Manhattan is such a small space and such a crowded space that a neighborhood could shift within a block. It, it could, the whole tone could be completely different. So the Lower East Side is kind of a neighborhood inside of a neighborhood. There's so many different scenes and so many different um, types of people but what makes Lower East Side fascinating to me is because Brooklyn is right there. It's right between the two bridges, three bridges, actually. Mm -hmm. And also Harlem is on the island. So, you know, a lot of people get some of their flavor from Harlem. A lot of people get some of their flavor from Brooklyn. So we're kind of almost in the center of New York City for me. Mm -hmm. So Lower East Side's kind of got that weird. It's, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of funk to it. No doubt. You um, do a, a very good joke, one of your most popular jokes, about how white women have taken over Brooklyn and how <laughs> white women probably killed Biggie. And, um, <laughs> and you know, you, you, you criticize gentrification in a very funny way, but you also speak about what Brooklyn used to represent, how scary Brooklyn used to be. Tell me about, Cypher Sounds was making fun of me, talking about, I, I say, talk to me about too much. So I'm not going to say talk to me about but um, tell me about <laughs> tell me about why 
Brooklyn was so scary in those in those years? Well, because they had all of the shooters and stick-up kids. Brooklyn, you know, like <laughs> KRS said, uh, Brooklyn keeps on taking it. Like, that was a real thing. That comes from something, you know? So mm-hmm. we was always intimidated uh, by Brooklyn just because of, you know, what you hear in rap songs. And Brooklyn's right. always in the house. Brooklyn, you know, there's always something bad associated with Brooklyn. It's never like we got the next future president. It was always, right. don't wear your jewelry here. So, you know, like, <laughs> and then you hear the legendary stories about, like, the, you know, the the, the drug dealers and the stick-up kids that uh, were almost pop stars. I think that's something that this generation may never understand is, uh, when I when we when I was younger and you know even further back up until recently, we knew who the gangsters were famously. Like they mm-hmm. were, they were almost. Uh, uh, it was like there was a folklore. There was there was like you know hood legends. Are you talking and about was, like, like like Calvin Klein and, and the first like 50 Calvin Cent Klein? People. Yeah, like Tut. Like you know all these right. guys that you hear about. You know for years these guys were like pop stars. You know so. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the a lot of the tougher ones came from Brooklyn. I feel like Brooklyn always had that aesthetic. And all of those also the, the hardest rappers came from Brooklyn. Kane came from Brooklyn, Juice Crew, you know, all of those guys. So it's like you kind of knew Brooklyn was the was the place. But like oh, yeah. I said, like, you know, Lower East Side was was right there. And then Harlem uptown was right there. And it was the same kind of dynamic. So we was kind of in the middle of all of that. And I think it, it had a lot of flavor. And it had a huge Latino. Uh, population. Then they also had Chinatown and they had their gangs and that, and that mm-hmm. was wild, just as wild. So it was just like it was a lot. It was a big mix. No doubt. Um, another thing that you, you and I share in addition to both being from New York City is we both use our first name and our middle name as our professional name. <laughs> oh, me too. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. So you too, Jasmine. That's right. Yep. Jasmine Lee, Talib Kweli, Michael Che. But you were named after Che Guevara, right? That's true. My father's a huge, huge history buff. Like, my father's one of those dudes that, you know, he turned on Channel 13 before cable was everywhere. We turned on Channel mm-hmm. 13 to just watch all of the history documentaries and all of the animal stuff. So he was he was kind of a real uh, studious guy in that way, just in his free time, in his leisure. So uh, he loved he loved the Cuban Revolution. He loved Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of funny because my mother probably doesn't know who Che Guevara is. <laughs> you know, she's a, you know what I mean? So, right. It, the marriage didn't work out uh, for whatever reason. But right. um, yeah, so it's a, it's kind of that that interesting thing of, of my father kind of being a street dude. And I'm sure he's loving this this time of protests and unrest okay. and action. Um, and he named me after Che. So I, I, did, I hated the name as a kid. But, you know, the more I started to learn... Uh, I liked it a little bit more. It's a controversial name, though. Some Cubans will love mm-hmm. it, and some Cubans will be like, you know that guy's a murderer? And I'm like, yeah, oh, I'm damn. Right. Right. The, the white Cubans hate Che Guevara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. White, they, they'll give you an earful if you if you say yeah. your name is uh, uh, Che. It's, right. It's, it's strange. Well, what's interesting to me about you is that um, you're obviously very smart, and you know, I've heard you say that you like race comedy, but you're you're a comedian, so you put the comedy first. When, you, when I hear you talk about how you like race comedy is not a social justice thing. It's like, that's just, no. you know, it's your wheelhouse. I don't, I don't see you as like a social justice minded person. I see you as Nobody someone does. who, right, <laughs> you, you're like, like, like you're the, you, you represent for black New Yorkers. You wearing your Yankee mm-hmm. hat, you wearing your Jordan. When I see, when I see you walking down the street, I see you on SNL. I see you walking to a club. I'm like, you look like, some, you look like one, one of my homies. Right. Um, 
you you often say, I don't know anything about politics. I feel like you saying, I don't know anything about, about politics is your political statement. Do you agree with that? I, um, I, I don't know. That it's, it's, I do think that there, there is a certain charm that comes with your first reaction to hearing something, you know, like mm-hmm. the funniest people in my life to me, like the, the funniest people that I grew up around was it was always like my grandmother or 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 a baby or, you know, somebody that's that's literally learning something for the first time and trying to make sense <laughs> of it. There's a there's something inherently pure about that. And I try to do that as much as possible on stage. Uh, with a subject, I try to approach, but what does it exactly feel like as I'm learning it before I'm trying to make people uh, 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 understand my take? I want them mm-hmm. to see me go through the process. You know, like in, in school, they say, show your work. I'm trying yeah. to mm-hmm. show you the work, you know, like show you how I got from here to there. I think that part's funny. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. I'm trying to change your mind and you don't even have to agree with it. You could absolutely disagree with it. You could think that it's a terrible thing, but I, the funny part is how I got there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, that's, that's where I try to make the joke live. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily about being proud of not, I know Chris Rock has a famous joke about how niggas love to not know shit. And, and, niggas love know. not knowing shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a classic bit. So I, I'm right. not perpetuating that, but it's, but it is mm-hmm. something to, when you hear somebody go through it, you understand why maybe somebody in your family who you can't get to understand your point, you start to see, oh, that's how he got there. It, mm-hmm. it humanizes somebody who thinks differently from you because I'm showing you how I got there. And I think uh, sometimes people may be afraid to be wrong. And I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to be wrong because it's either going to be funny or I'll end up uh, learning something. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very a very common sense approach. Um and you say that, but also you like you were being interviewed by Vanity Fair, you and Colin Jost were doing a lie detector test. And one of the <laughs> yeah. questions it was very, 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 very entertaining viewing. Um, yes, it was. Yeah, one of the questions that Colin asked you that was I assume was on the test was um, do you feel like the political system is broken? And you said, nah, the political system ain't broken. It's fixed. <laughs> like, you even impressed yourself when you I said it. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you said it, after you said it, you was like, oh, that was deep. <laughs> so you, you you have this ability to have this common, common sense approach, but also you say these deep philosophical things. I was going to ask you what you meant by that, but you said you don't remember saying it. So <laughs> I don't remember. Well, I mean, but it's true. Well, my, my favorite, my favorite quote from uh, Judge Judy, she might've got it from somebody else, but I love, she always says, uh, when you tell the truth, you don't need a good memory. I always Hello? love when she says yeah. that. It's a, it's the illest part because sometimes I don't remember something, but I, I'll remember it because I'm like, yeah, I can see how I got there. That makes sense right. to me because now that I'm thinking about it, that's my reaction to it as well. <laughs> right. But, right. um, yeah, I, I do. I do think there is. See, this job is very um, SNL. Like working on SNL, it's a very, it's a, it's a high responsibility job that you find out more and more because when you're just in the closet, you start. Like I started out, I didn't start out in sketch at all. I didn't do sketch. Mm-hmm. I never did sketch. I think the first sketches I wrote were at SNL. Mm-hmm. So to be in a position of power there. I'm from the stand-up world, and in stand-up, mm-hmm. you let it fly, and then if it don't work, you live to fight another day. Sometimes you do five, six sets in um in a night. A night, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot like that movie Groundhog Day, where you know mm-hmm. Bill Murray's just trying things because he knows he's got another night coming. Me and Syke talk about mm-hmm. this all the time. It's, 
there's another there's another one coming so it's a freedom in it he's like nothing matters because we're gonna do another one when you're on tv mm-hmm. and you get one crack at it uh it, it holds more water than well i can just come if it's wrong i can just come back and, and fix it i could tweak it i could see where it goes wrong and i could build it and perfect mm-hmm. it when you go out there live on a day's notice and just say everything and as you can see these news stories get a lot more and more uh important and uh, touchy yeah so you know imagine going out tonight you know going out on saturday night live tonight and having to make this funny you know mm-hmm. having to make a, a tragedy funny what's the responsibility do you try to make it funny or do you ignore it and not do it at all. And now mm. people say, well, you didn't even mention it. And he's like, well, mm. I didn't mention it because I didn't think it was funny. You know, so it's a mm-hmm. it's a very tricky, tricky balance. And the time that I need to make it make sense, I don't get. The camera leaves me after about 20 seconds. Mm. So learning that balance of the job, you kind of have to learn a little bit more about politics than maybe you'd want to, just right. so that you can have somewhat of an informed uh, opinion. But uh, you, you try to keep as much as that that essence of freedom, and you know. And I'm uh, I'm gonna say it the way it sounds to you when you hear it. Uh, it's a little trickier. Mm. Um, you okay. went to the famous LaGuardia High School of Performing Arts. Art, performing Arts. I wanted to go there too. Uh, how did that school set you up for Fame. success? And I want to live forever. forever. But see how we that's why I love you, Talib, just breaking out in song. Uh, how did that school set you up for success and what sort of performing were you into at the time? Well, for one, I didn't go for performing arts. I went oh. for visual art. Mm. So I used to I was a painter. I used to paint and I love painting. But I do think all of that stuff is is transferable like. I, what what it set me up, first of all, was being from New York. New York is so segregated, where a lot of times uh, where you grow up is what you know. And that mm-hmm. means you almost don't even venture off a lot of times because that community is such a... Is, there's a million people in your projects, probably. You know what I mean? So everything mm-hmm. you need is there. You got a Dwayne Reed and the chicken spot. Right. You're good. But <laughs> um, LaGuardia, going to LaGuardia, since it was a public school... Um, it was kids from all over the city that I was getting to know that I would never know. Like, how would I meet people from Jamaica, Queens? How would I meet people from the Upper West Side? How would I meet people from Central Park? How would I meet people from all over New York City? And they'd, and they'd be of all types of incomes. They'd be poor kids. They'd be kids with less than me. They'd be kids that were literally, I mean, millionaires. Like, their parents, billionaires. Like, literally the mm-hmm. richest kids. I think, like, Madonna's daughter went there after me. and. Mm-hmm. So it's that type of, but, but in that school, we're all just students and mm-hmm. you have to learn, uh, you have to learn how to deal with everybody. So I think what it did for me artistically was it let me know that nobody really has an advantage in talent or nobody really has an advantage in work ethic. When you see these kids, you're like, these kids might go on to be stars, but they're here with me. I have the same opportunity as them at least consciously, at least that's what you mm-hmm. you feel like you get a fair shake because you're competing with the whole city. And uh, it freed me up to think that anything was possible because for so long you, you, you only think this is, 
I only have a limited amount of options. I could either mm -hmm. rap or I could play ball or I could, you know, be a street dude or whatever, or I could get a city job. Or, you know, it's always that. When you see kids with dreams because they come from a different background, it gives you dreams too. Cause you're like, well, this is the same yeah. as me. Why can't I dream bigger? Um, who did you go to school school with in LaGuardia? Some famous people that you was attending with? I don't I don't know everybody that I went. I know Nikki went when I went. Um I didn't know her because she. I think she was a drama major and I was an art major, so she would be in the basement and I would be like on the eighth floor. Mm -hmm. So even that gets segregated. So right. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah, she, school, I, schools I, in New York have eight floors. That's for people who are watching. Where we had an escalator, an elevator. Right. Like our school, our school Lit. is crazy. But that's the like. If I ever have kids, I don't. I don't have any kids. Uh, uh, thank God, but if I ever have kids... Thank I, God! I <laughs> no, no, I think, congratulations, by the way, you're doing great. But uh, if I ever have kids, I definitely want them to go to school in New York City. I definitely want them yeah. to be a part of that fabric. When did you make the switch from painting into comedy? Well, I came, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, as a painter, I sucked. Mm. And, you know, I always feel like, like, like art is almost like a language. And there's some languages that you're a little bit more fluent in than others, you know? And so as a painter, I really couldn't communicate what I was trying to express in painting. I, it was really hard for me to do it. So I was trying to find other mediums. And comedy felt like something that when I tried it, it just clicked. And I was like, oh, I know mm. how to say exactly what's in my heart into a microphone faster than anything you know there's no painting i can make that's going to express what i'm trying to convey and i feel like um you know artists do a lot of different things you know like uh, you know you some act some end up acting and whatever and you find you end up being not a dope rapper but whoa he was an amazing actor or you know you know or, or vice versa mm -hmm. so for me comedy was kind of like an extension of it because it's the same it's the same principles, the same core. There's composition, there's timing, there's, you know, it's a lot of the same type. There's color. It, it all becomes the same. Have, have you ever tried to uh, make a funny painting? Have I, no, I've never Jim Carried it. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I, want to, I want to talk to you about your, your love for hip-hop. I mean, I, I, see, I, watch, I watch SNL, and more than once... You know, in, 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 in lockdown, you just didn't give a fuck. You was wearing like Tyler Perry Medea reunion t-shirts. <laughs> you, know, you know, but you you know, you 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 had the weekend update job, you have to wear a suit, but at the end you deliberately oh put God. your feet on the desk and show us yeah. that you got them Jordans on. And I Yo, feel like you do that. Go ahead. No, no, you it's so <laughs> funny you say that because I've been trying that's the that's my biggest fight. Like I love Lauren and I love the producers uh -huh. of the show, but my biggest fight, if they'll tell you, is two things I hate about that mm -hmm. show is having to wear that damn monkey suit yep. and, <laughs> and having to do warm-up but that's another that's another discussion but yeah, i hate no, wearing I, that I, suit i i, I want to look like how i look i mean mm -hmm. I, they don't they want me in a stumps kind of presentable yeah, you, attire <laughs> you got the job looking like how you look right yeah i mean right. it's just something about being in your own house you know it's something there's a different type of confidence and a different type of uh ownership you have when you feel like this i'm wearing this because i picked it Mm -hmm. But yeah. I also but I understand. I, I also understand their argument, though, that it, you know it's it's more because we're technically playing characters. We're playing news characters, yeah. and this is the uniform. And if you go back, we always wear the same thing. And every season, the anchors all wear the same thing. Tina Fey wears the same. Well, everybody did. Right. But but you me, show I'm us like, them Jordans on purpose. Like you'd be like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you'd be. Oh, like, he's flexible. 
And and I think yeah yeah you know <laughs> I think that, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna change I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pivot from the flexibility. Um, yeah, you. That's the you only workout me, I get all week. <laughs> you and me have you and me have these intense, really intense hip hop conversations, and I think yeah. that people don't really understand how much you know about hip hop. Like the other day, we listened to like. No diggity. You, we talk about whether or not Dr. Dre produced it. Like, you know producer credits. You know lyrics. The other day, I was I was in the green room, and I seen you just kicking, was it was it RZA or Jizza lyrics? Like, you just was sitting yeah. in a corner doing a whole, I don't know if it was RZA or Jizza, but you was doing a whole verse by yourself in the corner. Like, you really mm. know your hip-hop. How does that vast knowledge of hip-hop inform your comedy? Oh, my God. It, it informs it a huge... Well, we we've talked about this it, literally in high school. It's where you bring it up. Bring it up after a high school question because in high school, oh, that's, like, that's, that's not weird at all. That's you, you know, we, we, we do this. You, I was trying. I was trying to hide the magic a little bit, but no. But you know, in, in high school, you know, you guys were 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 a huge reason for that. You guys were a huge reason for that consciousness because hip hop was a way that I felt like OGs could talk to us. And say what they've learned, because you guys, to us, in our communities, was the first to be able to venture out. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, it's weird being a stand-up comedian because now I get to travel, I get to see the, I get to see the country, I get to see the world, I get to, you know, rub shows with a lot of people that I never thought I'd ever be in the same room with, mm-hmm. and I can only imagine. Uh, how it was for you guys coming up too, where you get to As, travel, you get to see, and you bringing that worldview to your music yeah. brings it to brings it to us where we don't even have a concept of it. So a lot of that enlightenment came from music. A lot of the things that you find out you're interested in came because Quali says something, or Mo says something, or or Monch says something, or you know somebody that you respect, you know. Uh, 3,000, whoever, Jay-Z. I mean, Jay-Z got people... Jay-Z got niggas, like, wanting to buy art. Like, Jay-Z mm-hmm. will say something, and it's, it's automatically a commercial for that thing. And it's not you should, just because we all want to be Jay-Z. It's just we don't know about you it. You should s- sell Jay-Z a painting, Michael. <laughs> I haven't painted in years. I, I, I was so bad at it. It was, But it was fun to do. I just I just wasn't good at it. Sometimes you got to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Um, you... <laughs> You could um, probably still sell it though. Yeah, Jay Z would buy it just to you know, just tag Shay at there. You know, Jay Z when he when he likes to be conscious woke, he wears like Shay Guevara sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, so so you and me, you told me a story that I don't know if you want to share with everybody here, but you told me the story of when Kanye West came to SNL around the time when he went to visit the White House, and having to write write for Kanye. And how he was dealing with you and dealing with the cast. I watched an interview with you and Seth Meyers. And you were talking mm. about the challenge of writing for hosts that are not comedians. How like somebody yeah. like a Blake mm. Shelton will come in and want to just do everything. Be like, you know, Christopher Walken, Charles Barkley, be like, give me the give me the jokes, I'll do them. Kanye right. doesn't seem like that type of person. Well, Kanye, we he wasn't doing sketches. He uh he wanted to do he wanted to do a sketch, actually. That was kind of a little bizarre. And uh, I don't think it was so much that the sketch couldn't work and that it was Mm -hmm. it was bizarre. I mean, we do some weird stuff. We we, we don't bat a thousand ourselves and we're Mm -hmm. professionals, quote unquote. But um, 
I think he just had some kind of manic energy going where he just didn't quite know how to articulate his ideas and he was he was a lot he's way more excited about a thing that probably wasn't gonna happen. And, <laughs> <laughs> but but that but that's common. Some people, you know, they they, they have this idea of when I get on Saturday Night Live, this is what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. And we kinda have to be there to rein them in, but also make sure that they feel comfortable enough to execute what they actually are going to do. Right. That makes sense, you know? It like, it's not, it's not much I can say because I don't want people to be like, oh, no, if I go on there, they're going to bash me too. Right, 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 no. But with <laughs> no, Kanye, keep, keep with Kanye, <laughs> well, with Kanye he, he, you know, he kind of, you know how Kanye is. We, you know, he's, he's got a, he's got a type of energy sometimes that, that feels a little, if you're not used to it, it, it could be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Your, and, uh, your story just brought me back because I, when I was touring with Common, um, I had Kanye in the road with me and people didn't know him. People knew him from like Point Out the Bounce. That was really it. And um, there was, we got to Chicago and Kanye, there was, there was some, he had some beef. There was like some gangster shit going on the streets where, where there was a, there was a rumor that Kanye got beat up. Oh. And so, so he was like, he was like, yo, Kwali, I'm going to, he told me a sound check. He's like, I'm going to come out in a wheelchair and a brace <laughs> around my neck. Right. <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna come out in a wheelchair and a brace around my neck, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna act like I, I can't move, like I got beat up. And then, you, I, then I want you to throw on takeover. I want the DJ to throw on the takeover instrumental, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a verse about how I didn't get beat up, but I'm gonna jump out the chair, I'm gonna rip the, the neck brace off, and I was like, you can't do that on my set. <laughs> Not necessarily because it wasn't a good idea, but because I'm opening for common, so I'm right. opening for common, and you got all this motherfucking stagecraft. And props, you know what I'm saying? Like, nah, nigga, like, you're not, nah, like, and it's funny because his vision was too big to be the guest of the opener at that point mm. in his career. And, and he, I told him no, and I showed up later at the show and look, and sure enough, Kanye was backstage sitting in a wheelchair with that neck brace on. <laughs> He's like, I you're not going to believe this. <laughs> no, yeah, I perform, I'm, I'm doing the, I'm doing this, I'm doing the show. And Kanye yeah. is looking at me, and the part when I was supposed to bring him on, I don't bring him on. Oh. Because I'm like, no, nah, you know, but then, because I didn't bring him on his part, he had his homeboy wheel him out anyway. Oh, my God. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Are True you Gemini fashion. Oh, yeah, this, this is Kanye, Kanye's vision. And, it's, and, and I went to see Glow in the Dark later. And I went to see the Washington, and I saw all this, all this stagecraft, and I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. He had these visions in his head. Mm-hmm. It was just too. It was too big for for that time. You know what I'm saying? It's almost an identical type of story because the the idea he had, he wanted, he just kept saying, "I want to fly." And we were like, <laughs> yeah, "Okay." And he's like, "Yeah, man, I just want to fly. I feel like I could fly." Like, the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, well, is, is there a script? You know, like, what do you what do you right. want to do? And uh, and he he ended up not being able to fly. <laughs> but, uh, y'all crushed his dreams. Y'all yeah, crushed his, y'all crushed then, his win. But we did give him we did give him some live uh, air at the end of it, and he went on a very bizarre rant that yeah. uh, got straight. Right. I saw Pete, but he has since apologized Pete, for. Yeah, I saw Pete Davidson trying to hide on stage during that rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, the sad thing was, it was our favorite song. He just ruined our favorite song, right. man. It was like, come on, man. They already took the Cosby <laughs> show from us. Can't we have... Right. Ugh. Cliff no, Huxtable was, was, did nothing to us. No, Cliff Separate did not. Separate the character from the man. <laughs> I can. Um, speaking, that's a good segue. Speaking of Cliff Huxtable, 
Talk to me about, about your earliest comedic influences. My earliest comedic influences, obviously Eddie Murphy was first because Crib. Eddie Murphy just, I mean, I'm, I was born in the 80s, so Eddie Murphy was the biggest star in the world. Um, but when I started really, really appreciating stand-up comedy, it was probably Damon Wayans mm. and uh, George oh, yeah. Carlin mm-hmm. and Chris Rock were probably the ones when I started kind of developing a, a taste, it was probably those guys. And then uh, later on, it became Patrice and Dave and, um, you know, Mitch Hedberg, uh, guys like that. Then I started kind of seeing that you could almost, you could be weird, you know, and uh, CK and a lot of those guys kind of, when around when I was starting comedy, how do you think Patrice O'Neill would uh, do now in in this twenty twenty culture? <laughs> That's a good question. Patrice would be amazing because I mean he he would he would thrive. He would he would flourish. But in, in the way that Dave is, because he's not afraid of the. He's not afraid of pissing people off, and that's not to say you know, oh he's you know fearless and all of that stuff. He he knows that the growing comes from being honest and being able to say what you don't want people to know about you. There's yeah. nothing about mm-hmm. him that he wasn't willing to reveal, and that's what makes them important and necessary. It's just like Dave said in that special that's so great that he just put out is that um, you know. Everybody, every institution we have lies to us. And and comedians mm-hmm. are the ones that's kind of willing to say, hey, I'm fucked up, but I'm still here. And yeah. we got to right. talk about this. You know, like when you go to therapy, they don't ask you, who do you want to be? They ask, who are you? You know, they, they mm-hmm. find the answers in you. You know what I mean? That, that's that's kind of the tactic. If you went to therapy and just told the therapist all the good parts and all the things you do agree with, and, and, and you wouldn't get nowhere. So yeah. that would be I, an Insta- That would be your Instagram page. That's all it would be. Facts. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Not- so I mean, they we pay a doctor to get us to be honest. Like we pay somebody, mm-hmm. a professional, whose job is to get us to dig deep and bring it out. And comedians are just offering it up. We're just saying, yes. here's what I do. That's therapy. crazy. And I mean, and right. that's that's a that's a tribute to. Lenny Bruce, as a tribute to uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Carlin, guys like that who were willing to do it first, Word. and Honesty. guys like Patrice and Dave just took it out of the stratosphere. They 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 took that model and they and they uh, helped it evolve. So I think Patrice, I would love to hear what Patrice has to say now because I know it'll be real, and I'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. that was there the whole time, you know, it'd be discouragingly good. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Rest in peace to Patrice O'Neill, man. Um, what a great guy. Yeah, man. You, um, I saw you on the back of that truck working it out, and I saw some. I think it was a tweet or an Instagram post you made. Like, if people are gonna be out there protesting, like, let's go out there and, and do some jokes. You know, um, you've been working. Yeah, on I look this, at it as yeah. I look at it as like the it's it's, it's uh, the USO tour. You know, we're out there yeah. trying to entertain yeah. the troops just to get, mm-hmm. keep yeah, morale up. <laughs> that's app. That's app. Um. Dave, on the phone with me before he started doing his little uh, specials and uh, his shows in Yellow Springs, uh-huh. said, "What people can't gather together? This is my fucking nightmare." Um, yeah. you figured it out. Um, what was that like having to figure out 
for comedians. And I, there's a question I think for Jazz, who is who is working and working her way up, and Michael, who has 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 had more success. How has it been for comedians when more than any art form, more than any art form, you need comedians people. need the audience. How have y'all been able to work it out? Well, for me, it's been freaking torture. I haven't been on stage for three months and I was just like starting to get into a groove where I feel like I was really growing and really learning and really like thriving on stage. And then it just halts. And so now I find myself being that annoying comedian that tells jokes during my conversations and stuff because (laughs) I just need to get things out. And like I've had a lot of inappropriate conversations because it's stuff that should be on stage that I'm saying to regular ass people. That's not something that happened in lockdown. That that happened with you before lockdown. <laughs> it's gotten worse. Let me say it's it's gotten It'd worse. It be like that, man. It be you know, jokes be coming out your pores. You just can't hold it in. <laughs> you want to stay so bad, it just keeps coming out. Uh, no, it's a very similar similar experience. You just sitting there and stewing. There's so much to talk about, and you can't do it. But also, it's like it's right there. I can see the stage. I can see the mm-hmm. people. It's right there. All you got to do is just give me 20 minutes. You know, it's like I, I see like these, they got these like viral videos of the little kid where they, the, the mother tells him, all right, don't touch the candy. I'll be right back. And it's got like it's just showing the kid just trying not to touch it. That's what it feels like to not do shows. Right. You're just like it's right there. I know I know I'll be bad. It's bad for me to do it, but I really want to do it. And you said I could do it later. Right. So is it OK? You try to just kind of make peace with the fact that you're being a good person. But I think um, I think we're seeing what happens when you lock people up for three months and don't get they burn they burn shit down (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know you had a clip go viral recently from your last special michael che matters which is truly one of the most important stand-up specials and you pretty much talked about black lives you're welcome you talk about black lives mattering and how mattering is like the lowest possible bar (laughs) that people could be asking for yet people are still out to fight that um You also had your race off sketches on The Daily Show, which explored where a black man couldn't go anywhere without being harassed and also still feel like and it still feel it it applies now. That was four years ago. Um, How does it feel to be living in a world where those clips keep being relevant? Uh, It's bizarre because um, you don't want it to be still relevant, but also, you you know, it is flattering that people will reach for something that uh that you made you know it's, mm-hmm. it, I, i've been in the headlines for other reasons and this this feels better <laughs> you know <what laughs> I mean? but uh, <laughs> but you know yeah it's uh i wish i wish people would would have gotten it then you know i wish it would have been understood then and and you know sadly i don't know that it won't be used again but but that's that's the tone of it, you know, like us saying that then because not just me, us us saying those jokes and us us us, mas- us making those pleas and Kaepernick making them protests and, you know, mm-hmm. different people demonstrating was the was us asking, you know. So I think now when it's gotten to a head, we're realizing this is the latest symptom. This is stage three or four of a problem mm-hmm. we told you to take care of a long time ago. And that feeling is that is the same. 
That, that mm-hmm. frustration is building four years later where this is what we've been saying then. Now imagine how we feel now that you're just now accepting it or taking ownership mm. of it or whatever's trending, you know? So it's it's bittersweet in that way. Yeah, back in 2015, I was arrested for protesting for Mike Brown. And it's like five years later and people are still getting arrested for protesting the same exact thing. But yet you have people that are in shock that people are burning down buildings and things yeah. of that nature. Like, why are they doing this? What is wrong with these animals? Like, we're not animals. You're just tired. And imagine yeah. how your parents feel and imagine how your mm-hmm. grandparents feel and, and imagine, you know, how people in legislation that are fighting the good fight that are just like, you see why I said we right. need to burn this motherfucker down? Like, you know, the, imagine a lot of the people that are in that fight for way, way, way longer than us. I think mm-hmm. the cool thing about this generation, I was just talking to a couple teenagers uh, at a show. I wasn't, you know, I'm not that guy, but no, I was, I was talking <laughs> to a couple teenagers and I was just saying how it's almost embarrassing for my generation because uh, mm-hmm. we didn't take the actions that they took and we didn't put up the fight that they were willing to put up. And uh, I thank them for it because I think people are starting. It's the conversation's a lot bigger right now than it than it's ever been when we were trying to free Mumia or we was trying to, uh, you know, it's just like a, it's it's frustrating to see, but and it's a little embarrassing. But it's also you also have to be willing to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Mumia Abu Jamal. I went to see him in in prison when I um was working on my Prisoner of Conscious album. But I think it's important for us to count the victories. Um, you know, Martin Luther King yeah. fam- famously talked about how he cannot condemn a riot without condemning the conditions that st- that form a riot. And he called a riot right. the language of the unheard. So, you mm-hmm. know, I want to just list a couple of things I've, I've on my phone, I've been writing down as it's been happening. I've seen changes happen since the riot disruption over yes. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, that decades of voting have not been able to change. Yeah. And 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 I'll just to, to name a, a couple of them, the NFL apologized for not taking the players' protest seriously. Um, we got Breonna Taylor case reopened. Confederate flags are now being taken down, the, mm-hmm. the Marines and the uh, U.S. Armed Forces. Conservative billionaire Bob Johnson said we need reparations. Um, of course, the three officers that that killed uh, George Floyd were arrested. Defund the police as a concept is going from the fringe to more mainstream. I've seen yes. gang solidarity. I've seen Chicago police talk about how they're exhausted now. But one of the things that hit me more personal was that I saw Jimmy Fallon, who I'm a friend of, a, a yes. good friend of, and uh, I, I slept in a tent in Africa, in Tanzania, with Jimmy Fallon, you know, for a week. So it's like that's my brother for real. But I saw him on his show apologize for doing blackface on SNL. And since I have you here, Michael, one of the things, I'm glad Jimmy apologized. I think it was overdue. Um, I think it was time. But one of the things that struck me was knowing the culture of SNL, Jimmy didn't make up that joke and do it on, on his own. It was everybody, it was the whole culture of the show. Do you feel like, and, and I, you know, I understand that you work there and you got relationships and everything, but do you feel like it's possible that maybe SNL should also apologize being that Jimmy Fallon had to apologize. I'm never on the side of uh, apologizing for the past temperature when the current temperature has changed, you know? I'm trying to pick mm-hmm. my words right because I don't want to seem like I'm callous or whatever. Like, like I was just saying earlier, there's times where I'll see a joke that I've told 
or a joke that a legend is told or whatever, and you're like, oh, that didn't age well, or that wasn't yeah, it. Yeah. But in the time, the, the temperature was different. I wasn't at SNL yeah. when this happened. And, uh, I, you know, I remember watching SNL and seeing, like, you know, Daryl do Jesse Jackson or seeing, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, f- you know, Fred play Obama or seeing, uh, you know, whatever. It didn't, at that temperature, it didn't feel like, well, this is wrong, this shouldn't be what you know what's happened to me it was sketch comedy it was people dressing up as sketch i didn't take it as oh they're saying that this is what black people look like and they're and they're trying to diss us you know like the way blackface is portrayed to be right and i didn't look at it as the same way and when i heard the controversy it was just like really Mm. only because there's a lot of other things on my mind (laughs) you know what i mean yeah only because I'm, I'm glad he apologized, and I think the timing and the change is, is right. And I do, I do, as a fan of the show, I understand that the culture was different. I think it's important to note that he was dressed up as Chris Rock, and Chris Rock didn't have an issue for it mm-hmm. with it. I mean, Chris Rock obviously is not the king of the blacks, but I think it's, I think it's like things that it's like it's like battle rap. There's things that are said in battle rap that are misogynistic, hateful, racist, like things that are just fucked up in in complicit polite society. But in the realm of battle rap. Is 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 all no holds barred, and I feel like comedy. Right, it goes through that somehow. Um, but you as a daily, when you were on a Daily Show, the Daily Show was very good about making fun of the tropes of late night television and making fun of the tropes of the news. And so they had people referred to as like, "This is our British correspondent. This is our black <laughs> correspondent." I believe yeah, you were yeah, the Missouri. Yeah. The Missouri correspondent. I feel like John Stewart and them <laughs> right. at the Daily Show. They leaned into it, but in this era, I find that. And on SNL and on the late night, the late night people who I love and adore, I love and adore Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers and Jimmy Kimmel and all these people. But do you ever get tired of sort of being the black friend? In the context of the show? In the context of when moments like this where we have to lean in on black issues, they're not talked about. Like, I'll give you an example. I've done Jimmy Fallon's show a bunch of times as a, right. as a musician. right. After George Floyd was 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 murdered, all of a sudden I get a talking <laughs> segment. You know what I'm saying? As Jimmy's as Jimmy's black friend. You know what I'm oh, saying? Which, I appreciate I appreciated it. I'm glad I, I wouldn't have did it if I felt slighted. I didn't feel slighted. I felt I felt that they they were gracious to ask me. Right. But I know that they asked me, and Jimmy had a lot of I think the only white guy he had on that week was Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, like black people try to claim him. You know what I'm saying? So it's like <laughs> I think that. Like, like I, it was very, to me, it was very deliberate. It was like a very deliberate, like, oh, we need to listen to black people more. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have, I, I know, a, I have a black friend. Like That's so just, fascinating. That's so fascinating because I, I remember I, I, I like watching TV during the, the riots in 90, was it 92? The, the Rodney mm-hmm. King riots. I remember the LA riots, you know, about Rodney King. And I remember that's when you see Ice Cube. That's when you see Ice T. That's when you mm-hmm. see KRS. Right, on that's TV. When you see Chuck D on TV way more. And these are the people that they was trying to ban. These are the people that they was trying to mm-hmm. keep us away from. And these are the people that, you know, they had to put parental advisory stickers on all this up and all of that. So it's it's kind of tricky because it makes me say, uh, so you were listening this whole time because you know where to go for the truth. You know who right. to go to. You know, you know who to ask. But now all of a sudden... You know, you you you're aligning with us, but um, I never feel that way because I never feel like when I'm out there. No matter why you ask me there, I know what I'm there to do, and right. and I know what I'm there to say, and I know who I'm there to represent. 
And uh, that's why I try to keep things personal as opposed to speaking for black people or speaking yeah. for a community or whatever. I'll say about myself and then the people that agree with me will see themselves in me. And the people right. that know where I'm coming from will know where I'm coming from. But I don't want to be the person that that is giving you a pass or saying, no, you know what, it's exactly. okay to do that. You know, and I think that's right. what's that's that's why diversity is so important when you have those ears and those eyes in the room and and there's there's five black people in the room and two of them say this is not OK. Or three of them say, I think it's fine. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, that's more of America than, well, our black writer said it was OK. So right. um, I right. guess it's OK. You know what I mean? I think that's important. And the same with women and same with, you know, Latinos, Asians and everybody. Go ahead, Jazz. What were you about to say? I was just saying that people like to take that as an excuse, like, oh, well, such and such said it was okay. And I think that was very, it's very important that people realize that just because one person said something does not mean that that's how everyone feels. Because it goes back to the people that get passes to say nigga or whatever. Just because your friend right here said it, that means you can say it around that one friend. That doesn't mean you can say it around all black people now. Right. Well, there's people that get a kick out of, being able to have the past. Sometimes they want the past just so they can say, you know, I have the past, you know. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's that weird, it's that, I, I call it the Jane Goodall effect, you know, like I'm, I'm cutting <laughs> this gorilla, not because uh, it needs it, but because I want you to see that I can cuddle a motherfucking gorilla, you know. And I think, <laughs> and I think you know, for for our community, we get rejected so often. A lot of times we give people the pass just because we're so excited that somebody doesn't want to kill us or somebody wants to let us in right. or somebody wants us to come to these parties. And we kind of got to check ourselves and say, why do we want to be there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. When I when I was living in tent with Jimmy Fallon, it was we was working with the Jane Goodall people. Like I was out there. Oh, I'm sorry. Out with the <laughs> I'm so sorry, um, Jane Good. I'm sure she's great, but I, you know, I just lack of um of other words. Can we say Steve Irwin or somebody? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know what you mean. And no more um, invites to the cookout. I want, I want to say this. I wanna, no more I invites take the time. to the cookout's full. We reach capacity. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, first of all, condolences to you and your family. Uh, you lost your grandmother during this COVID situation, right? Oh, thank you. Yes, I did. Um, and you, the way that you. The way that you handled that publicly was very inspirational to me. Um, you know, being friends with a lot of comics, I know that comics deal with pain in a, in a different way. And um, you, we watched you grieve publicly, and it was just you to see you going through something so hard, but still being who you were was very uplifting to my spirit. And you did it while you were working too, so it was like it was fascinating to watch, brother. Um, uh, thank you. Uh- um, yeah, and then just also dealing with dealing with doing SNL, which is a live show that's been on for like a million years and dealing with that pain and then having to do a live show yeah. in quarantine, um, you know, and the first couple you did, what did y'all put out with three, three or four episodes, like three, three, we, li- did three. Three, we did three, three at home. Right. And you during the weekend update part you you and the first one i remember you was like man this feels so uncomfortable like you made sure to have a crew a crew around you of people just to have the laughs but i found it interesting that and this is my personal opinion as a as a, as a consumer of the show what mm-hmm. i thought was interesting was as a live show certain big personalities are going to get and more sketches you're going to see them mm-hmm. shine more but at home 
Stuff that Kyle Mooney was doing in his crib alone. Stuff that Chloe Fineman was doing in her crib alone. I felt like we saw different skill sets mm -hmm. from them. Um, so tell me how it was challenging to not have an audience, but also how it challenged you, you and comedians a new way to figure out new ways to be funny. Man, I'm so happy you said that. I really am. Like that, I, I really am happy you said that because you're 100% right. Uh, people like Chloe and Kyle, like, you got to remember, that's where they came from, the internet. They did the, the, the online stuff. That's how we found them, you know? That's right. how the show found them. I'm saying we the show. That's how the show found them. That's what we like about them. And a lot of times, we'll have people on SNL that, uh, you know, you, you got to figure out how to make them work in the show. There's, there's mm -hmm. something that we could see in them that maybe the audience is like, well, I don't get, I don't get why that works. And it's like, no, trust me, this is impressive because that's why they're here, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so different circumstances have different people shining. So when somebody has to kind of do it in isolation, that's their wheelhouse. They know how to do it and they score, they, they, they crack the bat. So uh, it was, I was really glad to, I'm always glad to see that. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's hard. It was harder to do for me because I, you know, I was kind of in a weird emotional state, but also it helped a lot because yeah. it gave me something else to think about. It it made the days move. It kind of made time make sense. And I had deadlines, and you know, I could be mm. mad about something that wasn't internal but external, and you mm. know, figuring things out. It it kind of kept my mind off of it and kept me human. But uh, so I was really appreciative and happy to do it. At first, I didn't want to do it. At first, I was mm -hmm. like, nothing's funny about this. You know, like, this, right. is like this, is, this is miserable. But, you know, <laughs> being around my friends again, being around my coworkers again and watching them cook and watching them still care about being funny and still trying to make people laugh, you know, made me want to make people laugh, too. And, and we tried our best. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was really, it was a weird, a weird thing to have to do. But it also kind of... Uh, it felt cool that we was able to do it, that we that we were capable of doing it, that that could be happening and we can still find a way to put on a show. Mm. Um, in the Trump years, SNL has taken the heat for being a little too moderate. Um, how do you balance your personal Too politics? moderate, really? It's so funny. <laughs> Everyone's argument is like, it's either too moderate or it's you different. guys are too left or, you know, whatever. Yes, yeah, no, you're right. You're 100% right. How do you balance your personal politics, your blackness, and also making um, this show that's liberal but also mainstream? I think the cool thing to remember about SNL for me, per, as a fan of the show, like whether I'm on it or not, you know, since before I was on it, is that it's a variety show. And that mm -hmm. the writers don't write in a bubble. The writers write, you know, um, to you know, they don't they don't write all together for a sketch. Like we're not writing the show and saying, okay, we need this sketch, we need that sketch, we need this sketch. Other writers will write in their isolation or whatever, and then we'll bring it to a table and whatever's funny wins. You know, so a lot of sketches may be like it's not SNL's representation of this is our politics or this is how we feel. It's, you know, one writer might be conservative. James, uh, Jim Downey was a, was a very conservative guy. He was a head writer for many years. Tina Fey's a liberal. She was head writer for many years. So it's, there is no politics that, that the show should be uh, holding, you know? Mm -hmm. We're going to make mm -hmm. fun of whoever's in power, like Lauren says, you know? So right. um, personally, I have my own politics, but there's a lot of people who might disagree with a sketch that I wrote. And they might make a sketch that is the exact counterpoint, but that's the variety. That's why the, that kind of a show is important because it's it's just a platform for everybody to kind of get off. So 
you know, there's a lot of stuff that's on the show that I'm like, well, I don't agree with that point, but I think that's funny, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of have to appreciate it for for that. To that point, um, SNL famously had the Shane Gillis situation blow up Ooh. in a different mm-hmm. way than was expected. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for people who are watching, Shane Gillis is a comedian that that my, I, I, I spoke to other comedians about this. A lot mm-hmm. of comedians that I would I know and respect find Shane Gillis to be talented and find him to be mm-hmm. funny. And I will say, even though I'm not a fan of the man, I'm not a fan of his com- comedy, I, mm-hmm. I respect SNL, right? And I respect mm-hmm. co- comedians. So I understand that if he was good enough to get an audition and good enough mm-hmm. to get hired, he, there's something there, right? So he has to be talented, in my opinion. But I, I do agree, me personally, with the decision to look at his hire as a mistake and correct that mistake. Um, I'm wondering how you feel about it. Well, the history of Shane Gillis for me was seeing him at um, the Montreal Festival and then seeing his audition, and it was it was fresh. It was the stand-up was was fresh. It was it was just a different type of voice. A lot of times, like I said, it, it go back to about two or three different things that we already covered in this interview. Mm-hmm. Is you know, I, I look at comedy like art. I look at I look at people like color. You know, like he was a mm-hmm. different color. Like that was like something that we didn't have in the show. I was like, oh, that it'd be interesting to see what he did on our platform which addresses Jasmine's question of, you know, it being a variety, it being a lot of different types of voices. And it's just, I like that friction. I like that tension. I like that people disagree on the show and we have to come together and make something funny, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's me as a fan, you know, not even as an employee. I I just like watching that kind of thing. Um, So I liked what he would have brought based on his set. As -hmm. far as, uh, the podcast and the, and the interviews or whatever with, with the, the stuff he said, I think there is a there's a culture of comedians who and I've talked to Shane about this and I've talked to other comedians about this. So I feel comfortable saying it publicly. I think there is a culture of being able to say whatever you want and it doesn't matter because nobody's going to give me a chance anyway. The only problem is when you do get that chance, finally, now you have to scrub your whole life because mm-hmm. you was talking very reckless, you know? So you we had a new era. To... That's, that's a new problem. That's a, it's a that's new a problem. New... Yeah. But also, we're from a culture where you could never just say whatever you want. There was always a tax for just talking reckless. I think there's a lot of people that don't grow up in a culture like that where they feel like if it's in my basement, I could say I'm just with my friends, I could say anything I want. And now they're realizing that there's repercussions to that. Welcome to being black. That shit is <laughs> Yeah. I mean it if really it's recorded, is. it's repercussions. If it's if it's, right. if you're saying it and there's no cameras or microphone around, then by all means say whatever you say to your friend. It's gonna be their word against yours. But people the people are saying stuff on things that are recorded that people can pull up and say, Hey, you said this, remember. Remember, like, I don't I don't mm-hmm. get why they don't understand that. I don't um, I don't know the jurisdiction of of having to say, well, you can't work for this long because you said this. And here's the I, I'm not, I don't want to play judge and jury, you mm-hmm. know, so I respected the show's decision. Um, I think Shane respected and accepted the show's decision. I think I think after that, he was like, well, I don't even want to do this because it doesn't he seem probably, fun or whatever. He probably got some gigs out of it. Probably got some gigs. I'm sure There's he probably did. People yeah. who liked it, you know, like yeah, I, I yeah. really don't know, but um, I do think that people will, people in this business will conduct themselves in a different way now that they've seen that precedent. Um, so as you're the first black co-anchor of Weekend Update, 
um, which is, you know, it, you, you're the first black co-anchor of a fake news show. It was kind of like, so it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a good accomplishment, but it's also like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but my question to you is, um, Chevy Chase invented this, this character, right? And me knowing the history Actually, of SNL. Actually, Lauren invented it. Okay, do right. Let me give Lauren Michaels props. I met Lauren Michael. Lauren Michaels, for people who don't know, he really does sound like Dr. Evil. Everybody's got a Lauren. Everyone's got a Lauren, right? Um, I, I, Dave Chappelle, when he was hosting, he took me to Lauren's house. And um, I had the pleasure of staying in Lauren's guest house in Long Island for a weekend. Hey, which, yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome staying at Dr. Evil's house. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> um, he was like, yeah, he was like, Jack Nicholson just, just, just left. You could take the bed that Jack Nicholson had. I'm like, well, what is, is this my life? You know what I'm <laughs> the craziest thing ever. Yeah. Yo. But, um, okay. But Chevy, Chevy Chase, is it Chevy or Chevy? I don't know. Chevy. Chevy Chase, comedic genius, one of the mm -hmm. first com comedy superstars, one of the first comedy rock stars. And, you know, the catchphrase, uh, I'm Chevy Chase, you're not. That's an SNL thing. Like, Weekend Update being, being such a, regardless of how good SNL is, mm -hmm. Weekend Update has always been on the cut, always been relevant to what's going on. Chevy Chase is known famously as a racist. He's known famously, well, that's what people say. You know, he's known famously as someone who says off-color things, says something like, "Is have have you had any negative experiences with Chevy Chase? I've only met Chevy twice. I never had a negative experience. I've had like, mm -hmm. you know, he's bizarre, but most, mm -hmm. most comedians are, you know, but mm -hmm. I've never right. had a negative, I never got a racist thing from him though. They talk, I read the SNL book. There was stuff in the SNL book about things he said that people were upset about. Really? And this book is old. This book is at least, the book I'm talking about is like 20 years old. The right? big so, one. You're talking about the big? Yeah, it's big, big, But there's book. Chevy's racist jokes in there? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm It wasn't that? his racist. It was like homophobic stuff. He was making fun of a, a homosexual cast member. But I think it seemed like he was trying to just be funny. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the 70s was probably, I'm sure. Oh, no, no, this wasn't the, the 70s. <laughs> no, this oh, was, this was recently. No, this was like after he had left SNL, blow, blown up, uh, argued with Bill Murray, came back to host. Uh, and there was like a gay cast member that he made fun of and the joke didn't land right. I honestly don't, I really Chevy. don't know. I, like, I've literally met Chevy twice and it was like, very quick. Like, he doesn't really come around and show that up. So I, I really don't know about Chevy. Okay, okay. But um, I mean, but yeah. you want to hear some racist about motherfuckers. No, I, I, just, I, just, that. <laughs> I just... I just think, I just think no, it's no, interesting. No. I, I think the interest... I, it's interesting to me, the weekend anchor yeah. role from Chevy Chase to you. And um, and Jasmine, you have a question about... Because I like Colin Jost a lot. You have a question about Colin Jost, right? Oh, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Uh <laughs> Your yes, partner, he's a Colin Jost. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> no, he's not. Okay. He's a so, uh, stone cold, filthy racist. <laughs> because you be writing racist jokes for him. That's what it is. He does take a lot of heat, though, online for being kind of like the picture of privilege. He's white, handsome, Harvard, yes. engaged to the beautiful Scarlett Johansson. Oh, I love her. Uh, his book's called <laughs> A Punchable Face. Um, what made you want to stand up for him when uh, they were critiquing him on the internet and to call out, you know, bullshit? Like, tell me about your friendship. 
he's still my friend, you know. Like I, I, I like making fun of Colin because he's he's the picture of all those things you just said, except <laughs> he's not that guy. Like he's mm-hmm. just a regular white dude from Staten Island. His his mother is like a doctor for the fire department and and was on a first responder on 9-11 like he went to free school but some of the best schools in the country like this guy is a and he's the reason so the sole reason i work at saturday night live is uh colin jost because he because we were at hannibal burris's show we were both booked on the show while he was while he was shout out to hannibal burris at knitted factory in brooklyn and uh i was on the show i'm not shouting him out he left me outside the dime (laughs) (laughs) shout out hannibal burris now i like him more (laughs) that is a very hannibal move (laughs) no i um yeah so he you know i did i did his show and and he was like yo you ever do sketch and i was like no and he's like well why don't you come and be a guest writer on on snl just you know we're trying they was doing this thing where they were having um they were just trying to find new voices for the show, and and they mm-hmm. were giving people two week trials. And I think Chelsea Peretti did it before, right before she got Brooklyn Nine Nine, and you know a few people did it, and um, I got to do it for two weeks, and that's how I got hired. So you know, wow. Colin is the kind of guy like he he's he's not he's not a ball hog. He, he he's always helping people. A lot of your favorite things, I promise you, if you name. 20 of your favorite SNL sketches of the past 10 years, Colin has some hand in it, probably at least half of them, because he's that influential on the show. So I say a lot to say me making fun of him in that way is why it's funny to me, because I couldn't have picked a nicer guy to call a filthy racist. That's why it makes right. sense. You know what I mean? So, you know, when people really trash him, I always kind of take offense to it because I'm like, you don't even know this guy. You're saying Mm -hmm. what you just look, you're just looking at him and guessing, but it's your own insecurities is the reason why you don't like him. Why wouldn't you like him? He didn't do anything. You know, he didn't say anything foul. So I always kind of tease back the bullies if, you know, I don't, I don't like bullies. I don't like people who try to, you know, make somebody the poster or something and then, and then try to take it down. It's like, well, no, well, this door swings back. How about that? Well, I want to thank you for your time, Michael. I do have a couple more questions. Man, does this have to end on a on a Colin compliment? <laughs> he said he has extra <laughs> no, questions. No, 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 it's, not, it's not going to. He's still racist. All right, good. I got you. Um, <laughs> you and Colin, you and Colin Jost almost won a battle royale at WrestleMania. <laughs> Man, I, this is so confusing to me. How did you end up in a situation where you had to wrestle niggas? Yo, how I about this? Wrestling. Can I just can I just stun a little bit? Please in do. one year's time, I did SNL with Daddy Murphy, Sesame Street with Grover, and Damn. WrestleMania. Wow. Right. I mean, yo, eight-year-old me is on cloud nine <laughs> right now. For real. Like that's just i I circled all of the buckets. You um, you tried to escape the ring. And the wrestler, yeah. the wrestler threw Colin out of the ring into a bunch of other wrestlers. The what great was going monster, on? the monster of men, Braun Strowman. We, uh, <laughs> Colin, Colin made a disparaging remark about the business on Monday Night Raw, and uh, we had to settle. We had to settle it in the ring with with Braun Strowman. Uh, no man, working with the WWE was so much fun. It was a dream come oh, true. I, I'm a lifelong wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. 
my I used to watch wrestling with my grandfather. He loved wrestling, you know, the Bruno San Martino days, you know, back back in the day. So right, right. he would watch wrestling and you know, as a little kid, that was the one time I could go in the room with my grandfather and we could watch TV and he'd listen to me. And now that I think about it, I guess he was just getting a kick out of this two or three year old talking and keeping up, you know. And mm-hmm. you know, he was probably it was probably just exercising my mind and keeping me from tearing shit up. But uh, to me, it was my connection with my grandfather that I had to watch wrestling to keep him informed about it. And, you know, it felt right. like my little, you know, dude, Dylan, we'd eat peanuts and hard candies and shit. But, um, yeah, so wrestling has always kind of been a part of my life. And and uh, Stephanie McMahon, they were doing uh, uh. WrestleMania in, in the New York City area mm-hmm. at, at Giant Stadium, MetLife Stadium. And they asked if we would be a part of it. And, man, it was so much fun to work with them, man. It was was a dream come true. There's nothing like walking out and hearing 90,000 people just boo you. It's the best best feeling in the world. Yo, I'm telling you, it's the best feeling in the world. They're just like, boo! It's it's awesome. It's just like a rush. I was like, I get it, you know? When did you realize wrestling wasn't real because I just found out a couple of years it's ago when I was watching Total Divas. <laughs> I know it's so, not real. Wait, so, so wait, so, so Colin, so, so Colin didn't really get hurt when he... Are you being funny, Colin? Oh, no. Colin got hurt. It was real to us. Damn it. They... <laughs> no, I, I gotta you, tell you, you something. You like you was really... You, either you were a real good actor or you was really scared. Well, we know that I'm not a real good actor, so I must have been really scared. <laughs> that's easy. To, that's already easy. Um, no, it, you know what's so funny? Like, the word real is is a, is tricky mm-hmm. because what they do to prepare for that show is very real. You mm-hmm. know, what, what, the, what you have, the dangers that can happen when a, when a man is holding you in the air and tossing you is very real. That's that, Gravity is real. It's, wrestling is as real as gravity. And those mm-hmm. ropes are like, are like bridge cables and those mm-hmm. mats are not bunk beds. You know, like it's nothing <laughs> that I thought it would be. It's, it's real. You know, it's just, you know, are you was, a Griselda fan? It's kind fan? of exciting, and it's uh, yes. I, I like Griselda. Yes, I went to I see. I went to see. Uh, I went to see uh, West Side Gun and Conway perform, and they had wrestlers yeah. on stage doing wrestling what? moves. Did they really? Yeah, they That's really love wrestling. Oh, I, I didn't. It. I didn't see. I didn't know that they did. They made it a part yeah. of their live show. No, they did. They do. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, now you want to see the show, right? Yeah, I really do. Right. It's it's scary too, also because you're in somebody else's house. Like we work in live TV, they work in live TV. I always thought it was very similar in the execution of okay, they got to work a crowd and they got to you know they got to follow a script and it's it's important because they get really hurt. Um, so when we're there, we're like, man, we're not from here. We're messing up their house, and every opportunity that we're on screen is an opportunity that one of their stars that worked hard is not on screen. So we want to make sure that mm, we're having fun. And we we treat it with the right Thanks. right type of respect. And uh, it was it was so much fun and getting the crowd and 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 Braun was the perfect guy to work with man he was so personal and we felt safe and he was awesome right he tossed that that therapist out the <laughs> ring <laughs> oh it's one of my dreams I want to get tossed I wanted out to go of through ring. a table that was my only regret yeah. I was like man I want to go through a table so bad <laughs> and it was like they was like don't go through a table man you don't have to just don't right. do it and I was like I really want right. to go through a table though so this is my last question. Um, do you have a top as an MC? You were in the movie Top Five. As an MC, mm-hmm. I'm always asked about my top five. Do you have a top five SNL skits? Skits or ske- sketches? Sketches. That's, that's the right word. But I was just, oh man, that's a that's a tough one. All right, uh, let's do it. 
my top five favorites or like like all time or per- since- personal favorites that shaped and influenced you. Not not like a scientific data driven. This one okay. performed. You know, just what what inspired you? I got you. Uh, some of them might be some deep cuts, which is cool because then the mm-hmm. audience will hear it for the first time or maybe go discover them for the first time. But uh, one for sure is no particular order, but the one that comes to my head first is Pudge and Solomon is Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays a, he plays a, like a barfly, an old man barfly who's uh, complaining about his day. He's, having, he's really down on his luck, but he's just making jokes about it. And, and um, Joe Piscopo's playing the piano and it's really sweet. It's got a lot of heart and I've always mm. loved sketches. They, had a, they had a good, Eddie and Joe Piscopo had a great thing. They had thing. a great chemistry, great yeah. chemistry. That's the first one that comes to mind. The second one that comes to mind is uh, Will Ferrell's Doctor Sketch. Mm-hmm. And it's so stupid. He just plays this insane doctor with uh, Parnell and Molly Shannon. They're all breaking throughout the sketch because it's so stupid. <laughs> and also, it. it takes like an extra 15 seconds to end for no reason at all. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's the most perfect Will Ferrell sketch of all time. I don't even think there's a host in it. Um, and then, uh, you know, Cowbell, of course, is amazing. Of course. You got to put Cowbell in there because it's, it's Christopher Walken as Will Ferrell. Oh, right. man. I'm trying to... I got to I gotta think. That's, you know, I always that's, enjoy... That's three, right? That's three. Uh, uh, the first porn stars. The first porn stars with Cecily and Vanessa. Oh, uh, man, I, I really miss uh, Vanessa. And Me I got to say... I, and this I, is... I, a, I miss Vanessa as well, and Vanessa I don't even know Vanessa was fantastic, fantastic uh, uh, cast member and... and she was awesome. And then five, I got to selfishly, selfishly put it. I never want to put something on, but I, I just uh, thought it was really, really cool to be able to do in that moment. But uh, Black Jeopardy with, with Tom Hanks. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That I had the pleasure of working on. That was and, awesome. Um, that was with the, with the MAGA hat? He was just awesome. I mean, he <laughs> he did it exactly how we imagined them to do it, and and also took it. There's a there's a scene which which makes it so funny. There's a there's a part in the sketch where he where Keenan goes over to shake his hand, and he does like this thing where yeah. he gets a little afraid. Completely improv. Like Tom Hanks just had a he just thought to do it, and it maybe gets the biggest laugh of the whole sketch. And Tom Hanks is the man. He is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Che is also the man. Give it up. People's Party guest from remote, Michael Che. I'm going to come over there and fuck with you in a second, Michael. Thank you so much, man. This was so much fun. I'm a huge fan. Thank you, man. This was great.